Turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. <clears throat> we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning. A couple of other places as well you might want to find. Go ahead and find Joel chapter 2 and Exodus. Exodus chapter 33, I believe. We'll flip to those passages and it will be helpful for you to be able to read those words in those passages. Well, I was heartbroken when we heard once again of another shooting at a school in America this past week. Maybe that's why I felt like it's been such a long week this week. I can't imagine what those parents and those students and those teachers must be suffering under. And I, don't, I haven't listened to the news much or read much, but I did hear a few clips. And to hear the cries, especially of those moms and dads, who are suffering at this time was almost unbearable. And if they find that the man who now has confessed, if they find in a court of law that he is indeed guilty, then he should pay the penalty for his crime. Justice should be served in that situation. He can't bring back those students, those loved ones, those children, but justice should be served. But what what if it came time for the sentencing and the young man came to the courtroom and he came in sackcloth and ashes in a very humble state of mind and he cried out to the judge for mercy confessing to his crime promising to reform his ways and to never do it again would it be just to let him go free And then, what would we say to the loved ones of the victims? No, there would be outrage, and the judge would be thrown out for not properly administering justice, wouldn't he? And it would be right for him to charge the man with his crime. In the same way, for God to simply let sinners go free would bring about a great injustice. God cannot do this and remain just. It may seem like love to the sinner, to the one who's charged with the crime, but consider again the victims of that sinner, those who have been oppressed. Consider Proverbs 24, 24, and 25. Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight and a good blessing will come upon them. Throughout Scripture, God calls His people to love justice. To stand up for the weak and the oppressed. And so as we consider this idea, God would be perfectly just and good if He condemned sinners to their penalty. If God condemned us to what we deserve for our sins. Mercy, consider this, mercy is not required of God. And when it comes to your sin, brothers and sisters, God could have rightly left us in our rebelliousness and made us pay the penalty that we owed. But instead, so that God would be both just and the justifier of sinners, He gave His only Son as a sacrifice for sins. Jesus Christ, 
It was called the propitiation for our sins, absorbing the wrath of God, the penalty of God that was due to us for our sins. Justice is served because he takes the penalty we earned for our crimes against him. And this is true of everyone who comes to him in humble contrition and faith in Jesus Christ. Mercy is not owed, but God in his great compassion gives it. And this is a part of the lesson that we see here in Jonah chapter 3, a part of the lesson, the great lesson that we have in the gospel of God's free grace. This is a story of surprising mercy, and it is all yours in Jesus Christ. This is too good to be true. Amen? We see an example of this surprising mercy in our passage for this morning. So follow along as I read Jonah 3, 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Our Father, as we come to this part of your word, we pray that you would move us to thanksgiving for your compassion and that we in turn would have compassion on others. Well up joy in our hearts at the mercy you have shown us so that that might overflow in mercy to others. In Christ's name we pray, amen. In verse 1, we have the same phrase that we saw at the very beginning of the book. Did you notice that? It's a refrain. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. And we hear the refrain of the voice of the Lord. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. But this time the Lord says to Jonah, Proclaim to it the proclamation that I speak to you. The emphasis here that the author is giving is on the necessity for obedience. This is your one job, Jonah. Accomplish it. I'll give you the proclamation. You go and proclaim it. And after all that Jonah had been through, could you blame him for obeying immediately this time? Wouldn't you do the same? He had learned some valuable lessons. You cannot run from God. Jonah can't 
run away from this. He can't thwart God's purposes in this. He tried and failed, and it was no use disobeying. So this time Jonah responds the way any good prophet would respond. He arises and goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now the author tells us that Nineveh was a great city, and he specifies that it uh, would require three days to visit the city. Tradition, the tradition of hospitality, would hold that a visitor would go into the city in one day, stay a day, and then he would take a day to leave the city. And the author specifies this, I think, because he wants us to notice what happens when Jonah goes into the city to proclaim this message. He begins his journey into the city. Just going a day's journey, probably he was to preach for the entire three days. But look what happens. Jonah calls out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overturned. Now, the Ninevites have a few different options here. How will they respond to this message? Well, they could just totally ignore this foreign man claiming to be a prophet. That's what we often do if we see someone on the street yelling at us. He's gone mad, so why listen to him? Or if they actually took him seriously, then I can imagine some other responses. Let us eat and drink and be merry, for in 40 days we die. Or perhaps let's party it up for the next 39 days and then fall on our faces in repentance so he'll save us just in the nick of time. But look at Nineveh's surprising repentance. The very next sentence, the author tells us, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Jonah had hardly gotten his message out when they respond in repentance. This is even more amazing when you consider how God's people, Israel, often responded time and time to the prophets. Do you remember how they responded to the prophets? Often they killed the prophets. They ignored the prophets. They clung to idols instead of the one true God. There are a couple of instances in which they repent like these Ninevites, but usually they live up to the reputation of being a stubborn people. Quick to complain, quick to turn to idols, and slow to turn back to God in repentance and faith. In contrast to that, it's as if the Ninevites were at the starting line of repentance just waiting for the starting gun, just waiting for a message, someone to call out to them to repent. And when they heard the boom of God's voice, they responded. They fell on their faces in repentance. Friends, don't you want this kind of tenderheartedness towards God? That as soon as we are confronted with our sin, we would quickly turn away from it in humility and repentance? ready to turn to God in faith. Brothers and sisters, why would we persist in rebellion against the one who has shown us great love and compassion? It doesn't make any sense. And I ask any of you who are unbelievers, why would you remain in your sin against God? Why would you continue this path that will only lead to ruin? His coming may seem far off, far in the distance. 
but he will not delay forever. Don't take for granted the time that he is giving you for repentance. In verse 5, we get a summary of the Ninevites' response, but we get more detail in verses 6 through 9. This is what it looked like that they repented from the greatest of them all the way to the least of them. Jonah preached and the word spreads like wildfire. He doesn't have to even finish preaching because others take on his message and begin to proclaim it to others. It reaches the ears of the king. And his response is indicative of the response of all. Instead of a glorious throne, he chooses to sit on a heap of ashes. Instead of his royal robe, he wears rough sackcloth. And his outward physical humiliation is a picture of his inward spiritual humiliation. We don't get the sense that this is all just outward show. We have a hard time sometimes making connections like this outward and inward in our own minds. We know that one's outward posture doesn't necessarily reflect someone's inward posture. We know that about ourselves. Someone might be outwardly kneeling down in prayer, but inwardly they're only thinking about how spiritual they look to others. But we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because a practice is hypocritically abused doesn't mean we should throw it all out. Rather, I think there's a lot we could learn just in this, this outward response from this Ninevite king. There's a lot we could learn about bringing our outward posture in line with our inward humility. We are whole beings, body and soul. And so we ought to worship God with all of our beings. This is why some of you lift your hands as you're singing to the Lord. Your outward uh, posture is reflective, hopefully, of your inward posture. And at times, we ought to humble ourselves before God physically, I think, as well as spiritually. Maybe you lift your hands in dependence upon God sometimes. Maybe we need some benches to kneel at as we confess our sins together as a church. I'm not, don't get scared away. I'm not making a proposal. But perhaps... It would be good for us to kneel at some points. Maybe in the privacy of your own home, the posture of humility before the Lord. Giving a picture of your inward humility. The king of Nineveh humbles himself in a physical way that matches his spiritual posture. And he issues a proclamation to be published throughout the city. He issues a public fast. No person... No animal is to take a bit of water. No person, no animal is to eat any food, but let them be covered with sackcloth and let them call out to God with all eagerness. But the decree doesn't stop with outward piety and prayers. It goes on. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The individuals in the city had been guilty of great injustice, of sin against not only God, but also of violence against one another. The city is filled with injustice. No one is standing up for the weak. Everyone is oppressing those who are helpless and their fellow men. And the king's decree shows the comprehensive nature of the city's repentance. The king, the greatest of them all, humbles himself down low in fasting and prayer. And all the way down to the lowest, even the animals are portrayed as fasting and commanded to call out to the Lord. 
in their weakness. But also notice that the edict concludes on a note of uncertainty. Who knows what will happen? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And I'd like to say two things about this in particular. First, his uncertainty reminds us that God is not obligated to show mercy to sinners. As we heard about in the introduction, repentant sinners still deserve justice. Otherwise, otherwise God is not just. In other words, if God simply lets sinners off the hook, then what becomes of justice? Is he then no longer defender of the weak and the oppressed? Is he then no longer defender of the widow and the orphan? So he would be perfectly just not to have mercy on sinners, but he has given himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for our sins. The second thing to notice is that the king uses the generic term for God, not the divine name, Yahweh, as is used in verses 1 and 3. And this signals to us that the Ninevites still know very little about the identity of this God. They do not know his character. The character of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They do not know about his works for his people, about his promises to his people. If they had been a part of God's people, they would have known more. So look with me in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. Moses wanted to see God's glory. But the Lord said, man shall not see me and live. Instead, he allowed Moses to see his back. And this is what we read about in Exodus 34, 34, 5 through 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children and the third and fourth generation. Unlike the Ninevites, Jonah knew this passage and knew this truth, the character of God. So peeking ahead to chapter 4, verse 1 in Jonah. Look at what Jonah says. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. An echo of Exodus 34. And interestingly enough, two of these phrases here in Jonah 3 and 4 are found in the minor prophet Joel. The word of the Lord comes to Joel calling out, calling God's people to repentance, to put on sackcloth and to lament, even to consecrate a fast, to gather all the inhabitants of the land and cry out to the Lord. Read Jonah, uh, Joel chapters 1, 2, and 3. Even the beasts of the field in Joel are panting out crying out to the Lord because they have no water or food. 
And Joel declares the great and awesome day of the Lord, so great and so awesome that no one can endure it. And then we come to Joel 2, 12 through 14. Joel 2, 12 to 14. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. As Joel's prophecy goes further, we see that the Lord promises to have compassion on Israel. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Well, what do we make of all these connections between Jonah and Exodus and Joel? Some have wondered what it was that caused Nineveh to repent so quickly and willingly. Have you ever considered that? Some scholars wonder and they propose certain solutions why would they listen to the words of this stranger and his strange god and so some have speculated there must have been some sort of cataclysmic event maybe an earthquake was just happened recently and so they were primed for repentance or maybe there was an eclipse and it scared them to death perhaps the city was facing the threat of invasion and certainly all those things sometimes cause some inward motions toward God's or God or at least some thoughts of spirituality. But I have a different theory about the repentance of Nineveh and I think it's in line with these other passages in the rest of Scripture. The people of Nineveh responded so enthusiastically. They responded so quickly and immediately, so comprehensively in repentance because the Holy Spirit of God enabled them to do so. God, by His Holy Spirit, being poured out on these Gentile pagans, enabled them to respond in faith and repentance. In an ordinary, extraordinary expression of the Spirit, He moved these Gentile people to turn from their wickedness to the Lord. And the repentance of Nineveh is a picture of what God said He will do in these last days. In these last days. At Pentecost, God poured out His Spirit on all flesh. Especially meaning Jew and Gentile. From the greatest kings to the lowest servants. He says, I will pour out my spirit. And the Lord indwells by his spirit all those who are his. The spirit, brothers and sisters, is what has enabled our repentance. 
if it wasn't for the Spirit first working in us, then there would not be a response of repentance and faith. In other words, we owe everything to God in His mercy for us. In His compassion, He did not give us what we deserved. In His grace, He gave us His Spirit to work in us that we would turn from our sins in humble repentance and cling in desperate hope that Jesus would save us. This is what happened with the Ninevites. They were totally undeserving, but God poured out His Spirit and they responded in repentance and faith. And then we read in verse 10 of our passage, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them and He did not do it. The people, enabled by the Spirit, repent of their evil and God relents from the disaster He intended. Now the people of Nineveh had no guarantee that they would be spared if they repented. They humbled themselves, they repented, they believed. And they hoped God would have mercy. But they had no assurance that that would take place. But God in His mercy relented from the disaster. Nineveh had no guarantee God would relent. But brothers and sisters, we have a greater promise. We have no uncertainty about God's favor towards us in Jesus Christ. We don't say with the king of Nineveh, who knows whether or not God will have mercy on us, for he has promised us in the word of God, in his son Jesus Christ, that you are his beloved son or daughter, all because of his grace. No doubt about it. In the words of one philosopher, singer, signed, sealed, delivered, you are his, completely and fully. Even if you are here and you are not a believer, you have a better promise than the Ninevites. For if you will turn away from your sins and embrace Jesus Christ, it's not an if, it's not a perhaps, it's not a maybe, it's not a who knows, it is a guarantee. For as the prophet Joel says, and as Paul says in Romans 10, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That name is Jesus Christ. Call upon the name of Jesus, for He is the the only one who lived and who didn't deserve the penalty for sin, but took it anyway. He took it for His people. He simply chose to do so because of His great compassion and grace. He chose to do so because He is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Call to Him and He will answer you. Turn from your sins and cling to Him in faith and He will relent from that disaster. Our passage from last week, we saw the phrase, salvation is of the Lord. And Jonah had recognized in the belly of the fish, he was rescued because of nothing but the sheer mercy of God. He learned this lesson and applied it to himself. But remember, we wondered, what would he do with it when it came to Nineveh? And if you read just this chapter without reading the next verse, you might think Jonah had happily gone about his task applying this same truth, salvation is of the Lord, to Nineveh. He carried out his mission in spite 
of what he thought might happen, though. God had intended this all along. The author wants us to see this disconnect in Jonah. It's not connecting for him. A blind spot, a hypocrisy. In other words, Jonah is inconsistent in his application of God's compassion. He gladly receives God's mercy for himself, but he's unwilling to, for Gentile pagans to receive it. They're not worthy of it. So Jonah holds these two ideas in his mind, but the sad reality is he doesn't even recognize his own inconsistency. It reminds us of the Pharisee who stood and prayed, Thank you, God, that I am not like these other ordinary sinners. I give my money to the poor. I fast regularly. I pray regularly. And the tax collector stood far off in humility, beating his chest and crying out to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it was the tax collector, Jesus said, not the Pharisee who received justification that day. Now, what do you do when you hear these stories? My tendency is to cast myself as the humble and repentant Ninevite or as the humble, desperate tax collector. But what would it look like for us to pause and consider the ways we're more like Jonah or the Pharisee? In other words, in what ways am I blind, eager to receive mercy for myself, but slow to apply God's mercy to others? Is there a particular subset of people which you consider unworthy? Particular subset of people you lack compassion for? For some, it may be those who are wealthy and have no, seem to have no troubles in life. For others, it could be the illegal immigrant, maybe a Muslim person. More than likely, it's someone you know or are acquainted with. Maybe in your own mind, it's coming to mind right now. But as you consider even them, be sure to consider God's heart for those who are far off. Consider the character of God, brothers and sisters. He is gracious and merciful. He has been gracious and merciful to you, more than you can believe. Who knows, maybe as you have compassion on others in word and deed, God may grant them repentance and faith in Christ and relent from the disaster that awaits them without Christ. There was another shooting a few years ago, almost three years ago, at the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And what we see in that example is also an example of surprising mercy. When many of the victims saw Dylan Roof for the first time, they expressed forgiveness. One woman in particular, Nadine Collier, was the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance who died in the church that day. She said with her, her voice breaking with emotion, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again in this life. I will never ever hold her again. But I forgive you. And what seems to be a prayer to God, a blessing, an invocation of blessing of God upon 
Dylan Roof, she said, and have mercy on your soul. What is it that does that in someone? It's the same spirit that calls these Ninevites to repent. You'll probably never face that situation. But there are others who have wronged you. There are others who are in need. And how might the Spirit be moving you to show that same compassion on them? Let us pray together. Father, in your mercy, please grant us repentance from our sins. Grant us faith, greater faith in you, greater reliance upon your mercy. Grant us that we would walk in your ways, humbly believing, showing great mercy to those around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.